5. The Urbani occupied the apostolic chair. It was at that time far from being an easy seat. His predecessor, Gregory, had bequeathed him a host of disputes with the Emperor Henry I.D. of Germany, and he had made Philippi of France, his enemy. So many dangers encompassed him about that the Vatican was no secure abode, and he had taken refuge in Apulia, under the protection of the renowned Robert Giscard. Thither Peter appears to have followed him, though the spot in which their meeting took place is not stated with any precision by ancient chroniclers or modern historians. Urban received him most kindly, read with tears in his eyes the epistle from the patriarch Simeon, and listened to the eloquent story of the hermit with an attention which showed how deeply he sympathized with the woes of the Christian church. Enthusiasm is contagious, and the Pope appears to have caught it instantly from one whose zeal was so unbounded, giving the hermit full powers. He sent him abroad to preach the holy war to all the nations and potentates of Christendom. The hermit preached and countless thousands answered to his call. France, Germany, and Italy started at his voice, and prepared for the deliverance of Zion. One of the early historians of the Crusade, who was himself an eyewitness of the rapture of Europe, describes the personal appearance of the hermit at this time. He says that there appeared to be something of divine in everything which he said or did. The people so highly reverenced him, that they plucked hairs from the mane of his mule, that they might keep them as relics. While preaching, he wore, in general, a woolen tunic, with a dark-colored mantle which fell down to his heels. His arms and feet were bare, and he ate neither flesh nor bread, supporting himself chiefly upon fish and wine. He set out, said the chronicler, from whence I know not, but we saw him passing through towns and villages, preaching everywhere, and the people surrounding him in crowds, loading him with offerings, and celebrating his sanctity with such great praises that I never remember to have seen such honors bestowed upon anyone. Thus he went on, and tired, inflexible, and full of devotion, communicating his own madness to his hearers, until Europe was stirred from its very depths. Popular delusions, faith's guiding star, we find a glory in the flowers when snowdrops peep and hawthorn blooms, we see fresh light in springtime hours, and bless the radiance that illumes, the song of promise cheers with hope. That sin or sorrow cannot march, God's beauty fills the daisied slope, and keeps an in faith's guiding star. We find a glory in the smile that lives in childhood's happy face, ere fearful doubt or worldly guile has swept away the angel trace. The ray of promise shines there, to tell of better lands afar, God sends his image, pure and fair, to keep an in faith's guiding star. We find a glory in the zeal of doting breast and toiling brain, affection's martyrs still will kneel. And song, though famished, pour its strain, they lure us by a quenchless light, and point where joy is holier far, they shed God's spirit, warm and bright, and keep an in faith's guiding star. We muse beside the rolling waves, we ponder on the grassy hill, we linger by the new piled graves, and find that star is shining still. God in his great design hath spread, and numbered rays to lead afar, they mean the brightest o'er the dead, and keep an in faith's guiding star. Eliza Cook, Queen Elizabeth's address to her army at Tilbury Fort, in 1588. My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety, to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes, for fear of treachery, but, I assure you, I do not desire to love to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear, I have always so behaved myself, that, under God, 
I have placed my chief strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects, and, therefore, I am come among you at this time, not for my recreation or sport, but being resolved, in the midst and heat of the battle, to live or die among you all, and to lay down for my God, and for my kingdom, and for my people, my honor and my blood even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart of a king, and the heart of a king of England, too. And think foul scorn, that Parma, or Spain, or any prince of Europe, should dare to invade the borders of my realms, to which, rather than dishonor should grow by me, I myself will take up arms I myself will be your general, your judge, and the rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field, I know already, by your forwardness, that you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you, on the word of a prince, they shall be duly paid you, in the meantime. My lieutenant general shall be in my stead, than whom never a prince commanded more noble and worthy subject, nor do I doubt. By your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over the enemies of my God, my kingdom, and my people. English history. The city of Jalapa, in Mexico, is very beautifully situated at the foot of Mikulti Peak, at an elevation of 4335 feet above the level of the sea. But as this is about the height which the strait of clouds reach, when suspended over the ocean, they come in contact with the ridge of the Cordillera Mountains, this renders the atmosphere exceedingly humid and disagreeable, particularly in northeasterly winds. In summer, however, the mists disappear, the climate is perfectly delightful, as the extremes of heat and cold are never experienced. On a bright sunny day, the scenery round Jalapa is not to be surpassed. Mountains bound the horizon, except on one side, where a distant view of the sea adds to the beauty of the scene. Orizaba, with its snow-capped peak, appears so close, that one imagines that it is within a few hours' reach, and rich evergreen forests clothe the surrounding hills. In the foreground are beautiful gardens, with fruits of every clime the banana and figure the orange, cherry, and apple. The town is irregularly built, but very picturesque. The houses are in the style of the old houses of Spain, with windows down to the ground, and barred, in which sit the Jalapena's ladies, with their fair complexions and black eyes. Near Jalapa are two or three cotton factories. Under the management of English and Americans, the girls employed are all Indians. Healthy and good-looking, they are very apt in learning their work, and soon comprehend the various uses of the machinery. In the town there is but little to interest the stranger. But the church is said to have been founded by Cortes, and there is also a Franciscan convent. The vicinity of Jalapa, although poorly cultivated, produces maize, wheat, grapes, and jalap, from which plant the well-known medicine is prepared, and the town takes its name. A little lower down the Cordillera grows the vanilla, the bean of which is so highly esteemed for its aromatic flavor. The road from Jalapa to the city of Mexico constantly ascends and the scenery is mountainous and grand, the villages are but few, and fifteen or twenty miles apart, with a very scanty population, no signs of cultivation are to be seen, except little patches of maize and chili, in the midst of which is sometimes to be seen an Indian hut formed of reeds and flags, the mode of traveling in this country is by diligences, but these are continually attacked and robbed, and so much is this a matter of course that the Mexicans invariably calculate a certain sum for the expenses of the road, including the usual fee for the banditti. Baggage is sent by the muleteers, 
by which means it is insured from all danger. Although a long time on the road, the Mexicans never think of resisting these robbers, and a coach load of eight or nine is often stopped and plundered by one man. The foreigners do not take matters so quietly, and there is scarcely an English or American traveler in the country who has not come to blows in a personal encounter with the banditti at some period or other of his adventures. Condors. Condors are found throughout the whole range of the Cordilleras, along the southwest coast of South America, from the Straits of Magellan to the Rio Negro. Their habitations are almost invariably on overhanging ledges of high and perpendicular cliffs, where they both sleep and breed, sometimes in pairs, but frequently in colonies of twenty or thirty together. They make no nest, but lay two large white eggs on the bare rock. The young ones cannot use their wings for flight until many months after they are hatched, being covered, during that time, with only a blackish down, like that of a gosling. They remain on the cliff where they were hatched long after having acquired the full power of flight, roosting and hunting in company with the parent birds. Their food consists of the carcasses of guanacos, deer, cattle, and other animals. The condors may oftentimes be seen at a great height soaring over a certain spot in the most graceful spires and circles. Besides feeding on carrion, the condors will frequently attack young goats and lambs. Hence, the shepherd dogs are trained, the moment the enemy passes over, to run out, and, looking upwards, to bark violently. The people of Chile destroy and catch great numbers. Two methods are used, one is to place a carcass within an enclosure of sticks on a level piece of ground, and when the condors are gorged, to gallop upon horseback to the entrance, and thus enclose them, for when this bird has not space to run, it cannot give its body sufficient momentum to rise from the ground. The second method is to mark the trees in which, frequently to the number of five or six together, they roost, and then at night to climb up and noose them. They are such heavy sleepers that this is by no means a difficult task. The condor, like all the vulture tribe, discovers his food from a great distance. The body of an animal is frequently surrounded by a dozen or more of them, almost as soon as it has dropped dead, although five minutes before there was not a single bird in view. Whether this power is to be attributed to the keenness of his olfactory or his visual organs, is a matter still in dispute, although it is believed, from a minute observation of its habits in confinement, to be rather owing to its quickness of sight, omniscience and omnipresence of the deity. I was yesterday, about sunset walking in the open fields, till the night insensibly fell upon me. I at first amused myself with all the richness and variety of colors which appeared in the western parts of heaven, in proportion as they faded away and went out. Several stars and planets appeared one after another, till the whole firmament was in a glow. The blueness of the ether was exceedingly heightened and enlivened by the season of the year, and the rays of all those luminaries that passed through it. The galaxy appeared in its most beautiful white. To complete the scene, the full moon rose at length in that clouded majesty which Milton takes notice of, and opened to the eye a new picture of nature, which was more finely shaded, and disposed among softer lights, than that which the sun had before discovered to us, as I was surveying the moon walking in her brightness, and taking her progress among the constellations, a thought arose in me, which I believe very often perplexes and disturbs men of serious and contemplative natures. David himself fell into it in that reflection, when I consider the heavens the work of my fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou regardest him, in the same manner, 
when I consider that infinite host of stars, or, to speak more philosophically, of suns, which were then shining upon me, with those innumerable sets of planets or worlds, which were moving round their respective suns, when I still enlarged the idea, and supposed another heaven of suns and worlds rising still above this which we discovered, and these still enlightened by a superior firmament of luminaries, which are planted at so great a distance, that they may appear to the inhabitants of the former as the stars do to us, in short, while I pursued this thought, I could not but reflect on that little insignificant figure which I myself bore amidst the immensity of God's works, word or the sun dam which enlightens this part of the creation, with all the host of planetary worlds that move about him, utterly extinguished and annihilated, they would not be missed more than a grain of sand upon the seashore, the space they possess is so exceedingly little in comparison of the whole, it would scarce make a blank in creation, the chasm would be imperceptible to an eye that could take in the whole compass of nature, and pass from one end of creation to the other, as it is possible there may be such a sense in ourselves hereafter, or in creatures which are at present more exalted than ourselves, we see many stars by the help of glasses, which we do not discover with our naked eyes, and the finer our telescopes are, the more still are our discoveries, Wigenes carries this thought so far, that he does not think it impossible there may be stars whose light is not yet traveled down to us since their first creation, there is no question but the universe has certain bounds set to it, but when we consider that it is the work of infinite power, prompted by infinite goodness, with an infinite space to exert itself in how can our imagination set any bounds to it, to return, therefore, to my first thought, I could not but look upon myself with secret horror, as a being that was not worth the smallest regard of one who had so great a work under his care and superintendency, I was afraid of being overlooked amidst the immensity of nature, and lost among that infinite variety of creatures, which in all probability swarm through all these immeasurable regions of matter, in order to recover myself from this mortifying thought. I considered that it took its rise from those narrow conceptions which we are apt to entertain of the divine nature. We ourselves cannot attend to many different objects at the same time. If we are careful to inspect some things, we must of course neglect others. This imperfection which we observe in ourselves is an imperfection that cleaves in some degree to creatures of the highest capacities, as they are creatures, that island beings of finite and limited natures. The presence of every created being is confined to a certain measure of space, and consequently his observation is stinted to a certain number of objects. The sphere in which we move, and act, and understand, is of the wider circumference to one creature than another, according as we rise one above another in the scale of existence. But the widest of these our spheres has its circumference. When therefore we reflect on the divine nature, we are so used and accustomed to this imperfection in ourselves that we cannot forbear in some measure ascribing it to him in whom there is no shadow of imperfection. Our reason indeed assures us that his attributes are infinite, but the poorness of our conceptions is such, that it cannot forbear setting bounds to everything it contemplates, till our reason comes again to our succor and throws down all those little prejudices which rise in us unawares, and are natural to the mind of man. We shall, therefore, utterly extinguish this melancholy thought of our being overlooked by our Maker in the multiplicity of His works, and the infinity of those objects among which He seems to be incessantly employed, if we consider, in the first place, that He is omnipresent, and in the second, that He is omniscient, if we consider Him in His omnipresence, His being passes through, 
actuates, and supports the whole frame of nature, his creation, and every part of it, is full of him. There is nothing he has made that is either so distant, so little, or so inconsiderable, which he does not essentially inhabit. His substance is within the substance of every being, whether material or immaterial, and as intimately present to it as that being is to itself. It would be an imperfection in him, were he able to move out of one place into another, or to draw himself from anything he has created, or from any part of that space which he diffused and spread abroad to infinity. In short, to speak of him in the language of the old philosophers, he is a being whose center is everywhere and his circumference nowhere. In the second place, he is omniscient as well as omnipresent. His omniscience indeed necessarily and naturally flows from his omnipresence. He cannot but be conscious of every motion that arises in the whole material world which he thus essentially pervades, and of every thought that is stirring in the intellectual world, to every part of which he is thus intimately united. Several moralists have considered the creation as the temple of God, which he has built, with his own hands, and which is filled with his presence. Others have considered infinite space as the receptacle, or rather the habitation of the Almighty, but the noblest and most exalted way of considering this infinite space, is that of Sir Isaac Newton, who calls it the southeast sorium of the Godhead. Brutes and men have their sensoriola, or little sensoriums, by which they apprehend the presence and perceive the actions of a few objects that lie contiguous to them. Their knowledge and observation turn within a very narrow circle, but, as God Almighty cannot but perceive and know everything in which he resides, infinite space gives room to infinite knowledge, an island as it were, an organ to omniscience, were the soul separate from the body, and with one glance of thought should start beyond the bounds of the creation, should it millions of years continue its progress through infinite space with the same activity, it would still find itself within the embrace of its creator, and encompassed round with the immensity of the Godhead, while we are in the body. He is not less present with us, because he is concealed from us. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, says Job. Behold I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him, on the left hand, where he does work, but I cannot behold him, he hides himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. In short, reason as well as revelation assures us that he cannot be absent from us notwithstanding he is undiscovered by us, in this consideration of God Almighty's omnipresence and omniscience, every uncomfortable thought vanishes, he cannot but regard everything that has been, especially such of his creatures who fear they are not regarded by him, he is privy to all their thoughts, and to that anxiety of heart in particular, which is apt to trouble them on this occasion, for, as it is impossible he should overlook any of his creatures, so we may be confident that he regards, with an eye of mercy, those who endeavor to recommend themselves to his notice, and in unfeigned humility of heart think themselves unworthy that he should be mindful of them. Spectator, the mill stream, long trails of cistus flowers creep on the rocky hill, and beds of strong spearmint grow round about the mill, and from a mountain tarn above, as peaceful as a dream, like to a child in Ruli, though schooled and counseled truly, roams down the wild mill stream. The wild mill stream it dasheth in merriment away, and keeps the miller and his son so busy all the day. Into the mad mill stream the mountain roses fall, and fern and adder's tongue grow on the old mill wall. The tarn is on the upland moor, where not a leaf doth grow, and through the mountain dashes, the merry mill stream dashes down to the sea below. 
but in the quiet hollows the red trout groweth prime, for the miller and the miller's son to angle when they've time. Then fair befall the stream that turns the mountain mill, and fair befall the narrow road that windeth up the hill, and good luck to the countryman, and to his old gray mare, that upward toileth steadily, with Neil sacks laden heavily, in storm as well as fair, and good luck to the miller, and to the miller's son, and ever may the mill wheel turn while mountain waters run. Mary Hout, Envy, Envy is almost the only vice which is practicable at all times, and in every place the only passion which can never lie quiet for want of irritation, its effects, therefore, are everywhere discoverable, and its attempts always to be dreaded, it is impossible to mention a name, which any advantageous distinction has made eminent, but some latent animosity will burst out, the wealthy trader, however he may abstract himself from public affairs, will never want those who hint with Shylock, that ships are but boards, and that no man can properly be termed rich whose fortune is at the mercy of the wines, the beauty adorned only with the unambitious graces of innocence and modesty, provokes, whenever she appears, a thousand murmurs of detraction and whispers of suspicion, the genius, even when he endeavors only to entertain with pleasing, images of nature, or instruct by uncontested principles of science, yet suffers persecution from innumerable critics, whose acrimony is excited merely by the pain of seeing others pleased of hearing applauses which another enjoys. The frequency of envy makes it so familiar that it escapes our notice, nor do we often reflect upon its turpitude or malignity, till we happen to feel its influence, when he that has given no provocation to malice, but by attempting to excel in some useful art, finds himself pursued by multitudes whom he never saw with implacability of personal resentment, when he perceives clamor and malice let loose upon him as a public enemy, and incited by every stratagem of defamation, when he hears the misfortunes of his family or the follies of his youth exposed to the world, and every failure of conduct, or defect of nature, aggravated and ridiculed, he then learns to abhor those artifices at which he only laughed before and discovers how much the happiness of life would be advanced by the eradication of envy from the human heart. Envy island indeed, a stubborn weed of the mind, and seldom yields to the culture of philosophy. There are, however, considerations which, if carefully implanted, and diligently propagated, might in time overpower and repress it, since no one can nurse it for the sake of pleasure, as its effects are only shame, anguish, and perturbation. It island above all other vices, inconsistent with the character of a social being, because it sacrifices truth and kindness to very weak temptations. He that plunders a wealthy neighbor, gains as much as he takes away, and improves his own condition in the same proportion as he impairs another's, but he that blasts a flourishing reputation, must be content with a small dividend of additional fame, so small as can afford very little consolation to balance the guilt by which it is obtained. I have hitherto avoided mentioning that dangerous and empirical morality, which cures one vice by means of another, but envy is so base and detestable, so vile in its original, and so pernicious in its effects, that the predominance of almost any other quality is to be desired, it is one of those lawless enemies of society, against which poisoned arrows may honestly be used, let it therefore be constantly remembered, that whoever envies another, confesses his superiority, and let those be reformed by their pride, who have lost their virtue. Almost every other crime is practiced by the help of some quality which might have produced esteem or love, if it had been well employed, but envy is a more unmixed and genuine evil, 
it pursues a hateful end by despicable means, and desires not so much its own happiness as another's misery, to avoid depravity like this, it is not necessary that anyone should aspire to heroism or sanctity, but only that he should resolve not to quit the rank which nature assigns, and wish to maintain the dignity of a human being, Dr. Johnson, the olive, no tree is more frequently mentioned by ancient authors, nor was any more highly honored by ancient nations, than the olive, by the Greeks it was dedicated to the goddess of wisdom, and formed the crown of honor given to their emperors and great men, as with the Romans, it is a tree of slow growth, but remarkable for the great age it attains, never, however, becoming a very large tree, though sometimes two or three stems rise from the same root, and reach the height of from twenty to thirty feet, the leaves grow in pairs, lanceolate in shape, of a dull green on the upper, and hoary on the underside, hence, in countries where the olive is extensively cultivated, the scenery is of a dull character, from this color of the foliage, the fruit is oval in shape, with a hard strong kernel, and remarkable from the outer fleshy part being that in which much oil is lodged, and not, as is usual, in the seed, it ripens from August to September, of the olive tree two varieties are particularly distinguished, the long-leafed, which is cultivated in the south of France and in Italy, and the broad-leafed in Spain, which has its fruit much longer than that of the former kind, that the olive grows to a great age, has long been known. Pliny mentions one which the Athenians of his time considered to be coeval with their city, and therefore sixteen hundred years old, and near Tierney, in the vale of the Cascade of Marmara, there is a plantation of very old trees, supposed to consist of the same plants that were growing there in the time of Pliny. Lady Calcop states that on the mountain road between Tivoli and Palestrina, there is an ancient olive tree of large dimensions, which, unless the documents are purposely falsified, stood as a boundary between two possessions even before the Christian era. Those in the Garden of Olivet or Gethsemane are at least of the time of the Eastern Empire, as is proved by the following circumstance, in Turkey every olive tree found standing by the Muslims, when they conquered Asia, pays one Medina to the treasury while each of those planted since the conquest is taxed half its produce. The eight olives of which we are speaking are charged only eight medinas. By some it is supposed that these olive trees may have been in existence even in the time of our Savior, the largest is about 30 feet in girth above the roots, and 27 feet high. Accordance between the songs of birds and the different aspects of the day, there is a beautiful propriety in the order in which nature seems to have directed the singing birds to fill up the day with their pleasing harmony, the accordance between their songs and the external aspect of nature, at the successive periods of the day at which they sing, is quite remarkable, and it is impossible to visit the forest or the sequestered dell, where the notes of the feathered tribes are heard to the greatest advantage, without being impressed with the conviction that there is design in the arrangement of this sylvan minstrelsy. First the robin and not the lark, as has been generally imagined, as soon as twilight has drawn its imperceptible line between night and day, begins his lovely song, how sweetly does this harmonize with the soft dawning of the day, he goes on till the twinkling sunbeams begin to tell him that his notes no longer accord with the rising scene, up starts the lark, and with him a variety of sprightly songsters, whose lively notes are in perfect correspondence with the gaiety of the morning. The general warbling continues, with now and then an interruption by the transient croak of the raven, the scream of the jay, or the pert chattering of the dog, the nightingale, and wearied by the vocal exertions of the night, 
joins his inferiors in sound in the general harmony. The thrush is wisely placed on the summit of some lofty tree, that its loud and piercing notes may be softened by distance before they reach the ear, while the mellow blackbird seeks the inferior branches. Should the Sunday having been eclipsed by a cloud, shine forth with fresh effulgence. How frequently we see the goldfinch perch on some blossom bough, and hear its song poured forth in a strain peculiarly energetic, while the Sunday full shining on his beautiful plumes, displays his golden wings and crimson crest to charming advantage. The notes of the crooked blend with this cheering concert in a pleasing manner, and for a short time are highly grateful to the ear. But sweet as this singular song island it would tire by its uniformity, were it not given in so transient a manner. At length evening advances, the performers gradually retire, and the concert softly dies away. The sun is seen no more, the robin again sends up his twilight song, till the more serene hour of night sets him to the bower to rest, and now to close the scene in full and perfect harmony, no sooner is the voice of the robin hushed, and night again spreads in gloom over the horizon, than the owl sends forth his slow and solemn tones, they are more than plaintive and less than melancholy and tend to inspire the imagination with a train of contemplations well adapted to the serious hour. Thus we see that birds bear no inconsiderable share in harmonizing some of the most beautiful and interesting scenes in nature. Dr. Jenner. Character of Edward V.I. Thus died Edward V.I. In the sixteenth year of his age, he was counted the wonder of his time, he was not only learned in the tongues and the liberal sciences, but he knew well the state of his kingdom. He kept a table book in which he had written the characters of all the eminent men of the nation, he studied fortification, and understood the men well, he knew the harbors in all his dominions, with the depth of the water, and way of coming into them, he understood foreign affairs so well, that the ambassadors who were sent into England, published very extraordinary things of him in all the courts of Europe, he had great quickness of apprehension, but being distrustful of his memory, he took notes of everything he heard that was considerable, in Greek characters, 